You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Explorers. Today we are going to take a look at the life of American explorer and soldier, Zebulon Pike. Pike is probably most famous for his 1806 expedition into the newly acquired Louisiana Territory, traveling into the Rocky Mountains and discovering the headwaters of the Arkansas River. His efforts would help open up the American West to settlers and commerce, but it would also be clouded with political intrigue, all of which makes a great story. So let's get right to it, and we're going to start part one of Zebulon Pike. Zebulon Montgomery Pike was born in Lamington, New Jersey on January 5th, 1779. He was quite literally a child of the American Revolution. His father, also named Zebulon, had joined the American fight for independence as a private and would rise to the rank of captain in the Continental Army by the war's end. Zebulon's middle name, Montgomery, was to honor General Richard Montgomery, who had died leading American forces in an attempt to capture Quebec in December of 1775. Zebulon Sr. would serve with distinction during the Revolution, fighting throughout the colonies and even serving under the nation's top man, General George Washington. He had worked hard, sacrificed, and prevailed, along with many other men and women. After the war, the growing family, which included Pike's mother Isabella, moved to western Pennsylvania, where they bought a 298-acre plot of land. Unfortunately, the years after the war were difficult for many veterans like Zebulon Pike Sr., the newly minted American government was struggling to pay what was promised to those who had served. The federal government was deeply in debt with the war, and there was little money coming in. Men like Zebulon Pike Sr. were paid off in paper notes, redeemable in some to be determined future. The result was that cash was short and credit was non existent. All over the colonies, families like the Pikes were forced to surrender their property in order to pay taxes and debts. Many war veterans sold their promissory notes for pennies on the dollar. This left many disgruntled Americans as the promise of the Revolution had been lost. Like so many, the Pikes sold or lost their property at some point during the 1780s. In 1791, the federal government was still in its infancy. Forty-year-old Zebulon Pike had a wife and four children, and not much to show for his sacrifice and hard work. So Senior returned to the world that he had found success, the Army. Now a quick note about the American military at this time. Distrust of a large government ran deep in many Americans. That extended to the concept of a national armed force. Many saw a national army as the first step toward tyranny. So after independence was won, the Continental Army was dissolved in favor of state and local militias. As you can imagine, this led to a wide range of quality. In 1790, an army of American militia suffered a series of defeats to a confederacy of native Indians in the Ohio Valley in what was part of the Northwest Indian War. 
This, along with some other reasons, led to the call for a professional standing army, one that could meet the growing challenges facing Americans, especially those in the West. The response was sort of a half measure, the creation of an army of 2,000 short-term recruits, called levies. Zebulon Pike Sr. would sign up. He would be given the rank of captain and head west, where Native Indians, with the backing of the British, were in open conflict with the expansion-minded Republic. Unfortunately, the quality of the recruits was severely lacking. This led to one of the greatest battlefield disasters in American history on November 4, 1791, the Battle of the Wabash. It's also called St. Clair's Defeat, as well as the Battle of a Thousand Slain, which tells you the results were not good. Roughly a thousand American troops, led by General Arthur St. Clair, faced off against an equal number of Indians from a confederation of Miamis, Shawnees, and Delawares under the command of Little Turtle. It would be a devastating defeat for the Americans. More than 600 would be killed in the battle, and over 250 wounded. Captain Pike, who had survived the slaughter, would take command of an entire regiment due to the loss of so many officers. Recognizing the need to upgrade the nation's military, Congress created a standing National Army in early 1792. As before, Zebulon Pike enlisted, and he would be given the rank of captain. Zebulon Sr. would serve under General Anthony Wayne, a Revolutionary War hero who Pike had served with a decade before. Wayne would go about whipping the new army into shape, and he would eventually lead the Americans to victory at the Battle of Fallen Timbers in 1794 and end the Native American threat in the region and force the British out of the territory. Now it is time to shift our tale from Zebulon Pike Sr. to his then 15-year-old son, Zebulon Montgomery Pike. In 1794, the same year as Wayne's victory at the Battle of the Fallen Timbers, 15-year-old Zebulon Jr. enlisted in the United States Army, following in his father's footsteps. For Jr., the choice of the Army was probably not a difficult one. It was where his father had earned success and satisfaction. Sr. had imparted many ideals on his eldest son, honoring hard work, resilience, sacrifice, and, probably more than anything else, nation. For the Pikes, independence and success and nation were intertwined. Young Zebulon would spend the next decade manning the various forts in the Ohio Valley and guiding goods up and down the Ohio, Wabash, and Mississippi rivers. It was a hard life. Pay was low and living conditions could be crude. But these years helped make the man. Zebulon Pike would become a tireless, dedicated, hardworking, and proud young man, much like his father and his nation. In this time, Pike would learn about the value of a river. Rivers were the lifeblood of America. Along the rivers flowed commerce and settlers. The rivers were critical routes, essential to the military. Pike would understand that the rivers of America were the key to the growth of the young nation that he was so proud to serve. Zebulon Pike was not a formerly educated man, but he believed in the value of education. He would read constantly, always seeking to better himself as a person. His favorite book was The Economy of Human Life, a popular sort of self-help book published in the 1700s. The book championed Western enlightenment, education, family, religion, self-sacrifice. Pike even learned French. The book espoused virtues that were the kinds of things taught to Pike by his father, and traits that he would strive to attain in his life. Zebulon Pike was not a big man, reportedly about five foot eight, but he was strong and his endurance and energy were often noted by his colleagues and he did not drink or carouse like so many men out on the frontier. The discipline Pike displayed allowed him to succeed. He was given a commission as a second lieutenant in the infantry in 1799, and he would be promoted to first lieutenant later that year. 
Around 1800, Pike began to court Clarissa, or Claro, Harlow Brown of Kentucky, the daughter of an old family friend. Clara's father disapproved of the match, as he did not want his daughter living the life of an army wife, which was often dangerous as well as isolating. But Mary the two did in 1801. They would have a daughter named Clarissa, like her mother, in late 1802 or early 1803. The Pikes would have several other children, but only Clarissa would survive infancy. And that takes us to 1803. Pike was assigned to Fort Cascasia, a small outpost south of St. Louis, where the Cascasia River meets the Mississippi. It was here that word reached the frontier that the United States had not only purchased the key port of New Orleans from the French, but the entire Louisiana Territory. It was an event that would change the life of Zebulon Pike as well as the entire nation. Now is a good time to take a step away from Zebulon Pike and take a look at the bigger picture of the world. Let's head back to just after the American Revolution. The territory west of the original 13 colonies was growing rapidly as men searched for opportunity and fortune in the rugged but fertile lands beyond the Appalachian Mountains. Kentucky, Tennessee, western Pennsylvania, and Ohio were swelling with opportunistic men and women. But American expansion was trouble to some nations. In the north, the British still viewed the upper Midwest as a valuable land that they should dominate, especially with their enterprising fur trading companies that surrounded the Great Lakes. To the south and west, it was the Spanish who watched with apprehension. The growing American population was a threat to their economic interests and their empire. No place was more critical than the city of New Orleans and the lower Mississippi River. A quick lesson about New Orleans. The city was founded in 1718 by the French, but it was ceded to the Spanish in the 1762 Treaty of Fontainebleau. The loss of Canada to the British and Louisiana to the Spanish virtually ended France's colonial empire in the New World. It should be noted that the exact boundaries of the land ceded to Spain were never really defined by the treaty, and that would cause issues later. In the 1780s, the Spanish saw the threat of the growing American presence in the West, and they began to block Americans from using the Lower Mississippi, as well as the Port of New Orleans. The port, though, was critical for American trade. Remember, the vast majority of commerce flows downhill. The rivers west of the Appalachians, like the Ohio and Wabash and a dozen others, flowed west, coming together and eventually emptying out in the Mississippi. It is far easier to send something down the Ohio to the Mississippi River and then to the Gulf of Mexico, and then sail it to New England, or wherever you need to send it, than to go up the Ohio River and haul it by land over the mountains and then to the eastern cities. Thus, New Orleans was critical to the western merchants. In 1795, the United States would finally strike a deal with the Spanish, the Treaty of Lorenzo, or Pinckney's Treaty as it was known, defining the boundaries of the United States and the Spanish colonies. And most importantly, it gave Americans the right to navigate the Mississippi River and deposit their goods at the port of New Orleans. So, all sounds good. But in Europe, other events were occurring that would reverberate in America. Napoleon Bonaparte had risen to power in France in the late 1790s, and he had begun to dream of re-establishing a North American empire. To that end, he reacquired Louisiana in 1800 in a secret deal with the Spanish. And again, as in 1762, the exact boundaries of the land he acquired were not detailed. Bonaparte next sent a large expedition to Haiti in 1801, with the intention of reclaiming the rebellious land, which only a decade before had been called the Western Hemisphere's most profitable colony, due to the lucrative sugar trade. But Napoleon's dream of an overseas empire faded when his forces were defeated in Haiti. He knew Louisiana was easy pickings for another colonial empire, such as Spain or Britain. 
and with war brewing in Europe, he decided it was easier to rid himself of the colony and make some cash rather than try and defend it. Thus, when the Americans came knocking with the idea of buying New Orleans, he instead offered to sell the upstart nation the entire Louisiana Territory. The Louisiana Purchase occurred on July 4, 1803. The United States would gain over 800,000 square miles of territory in exchange for $15 million. The purchase included land from 15 current U.S. states and two Canadian provinces, including all of present-day Arkansas, Missouri, Iowa, Oklahoma, Kansas, and Nebraska, as well as portions of Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota, New Mexico, Texas, Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, and Louisiana, and not to mention small portions of the Canadian provinces of Alberta and Saskatchewan. That was a big buy. Hey honey, I went out for New Orleans and came home with 800,000 square miles of stuff. Hope you like it. It should be noted that France had said in its 1800 acquisition of Louisiana that they wouldn't give or sell the territory to anyone but Spain. So Napoleon's deal was not necessarily on the up and up, and Spain was not happy. Also, let's remember there are no real border definitions in many of these regions. Spain and France had never settled on specifics when they had swapped the colonies, and the French and Americans had not defined those borders either. So right off the bat, there were sovereignty disputes between Spain and the United States. Spain argued that the Louisiana Territory wasn't anything more than the western bank of the Mississippi River and the cities of New Orleans and St. Louis. The United States, of course, saw this as a much bigger deal. But President Thomas Jefferson knew that just saying he had bought the land from France was not enough. Jefferson understood that the United States, or any other nation, would need to stake tangible claims with settlements and outposts. To do that, you would first have to identify where to build forts and trading posts. You had to scout out good locations for settlements. You had to identify what lands were good for farming, what were good for mining, and so forth. This new territory would need to be explored and exploited via the great rivers. The Missouri, the Red, the Arkansas, the Platte, and so many others would provide the highways of commerce and civilization and liberty that Jefferson dreamed about. To this end, Jefferson decided to send out several expeditions to map out the big backyard he had just bought. The most famous of these was the Lewis and Clark Expedition, which set out in 1804, heading up the Missouri River. But he also authorized two expeditions up the Red River in 1806. The goal was to solidify American claims to the region, scout out avenues of commerce, identify spots to build settlements and forts, and also to make treaties with the Indians, and to set the stage for the next wave of American expansion. And that brings us back to Zebulon Pike. Lewis and Clark had come through Fort Kaskasia in 1803 as they were preparing for their great journey west. While they were looking for men to go on the journey, they were not taking officers, so Pike was ineligible to join them. But Captain Meriwether Lewis did ask Pike if he was interested in leading a different expedition into the Louisiana Territory, should the opportunity arise. The ambitious young Pike said, you bet I would. For Pike, the idea of leading an expedition into the wilderness was likely very enticing. He had spent a decade immersed in logistics and maintenance, but he was a man who wanted to do great things for his nation. Such an assignment would have been immensely appealing to the young officer. And now that we have gotten back to Pike, we have to leave him again. That's because it's time for intrigue and skullduggery. I don't think I've ever used the word skullduggery. I'm excited by that. Anyhow, intrigue and skullduggery. That means it's time to introduce a key figure in Zebulon Pike's life, United States General James Wilkinson. In 1804, Wilkinson was the governor of the Louisiana Territory, as well as the top-ranking general in the United States Army. 
He had been born in Maryland in 1757 and had served in the army during the Revolutionary War, rising to the rank of general despite his young age and a general lack of accomplishment on the battlefield. It seems, above all, Wilkinson had a knack for self-promotion. He was charming and affable and intelligent. He seems to have been the kind of guy who could assess others quickly and exploit their weaknesses to his advantage. If it sounds like Wilkinson was a con man, you're not that far off. He liked the good life. He enjoyed honors and money, especially money, and he had developed an extravagant lifestyle. Wilkinson dabbled in politics a bit, then moved to Kentucky after the war. By the mid-1780s, there was a steady stream of settlers to the region. With it came a strong independence streak. These were the people who had come to make a better life. Many were traders and merchants and trappers, and they were quickly followed by settlers. But these early men and women had different aims than their counterparts on the East Coast. For them, their lifeblood of the nation became the Ohio and Mississippi rivers, not the great ports of the East Coast. Out of this grew a movement in the western states, a rebellious movement not unlike the one that emerged 20 years before in the original colonies. With so many commercial leaders seeing the future in the West, they began to consider the idea that Spain was their logical ally, not the merchants and bankers of New England. In 1787, Wilkinson signed on with the Spanish as their secret agent. In some ways, this wasn't a big deal. Men, especially merchants who needed to deal with the Spanish in New Orleans, often signed such agreements to keep their businesses afloat. And Wilkinson was no different. He signed a document swearing his allegiance to the Spanish crown and agreed to look after the interests of Spain. But Wilkinson went further. He went on to suggest that Kentucky join the Spanish Empire as its vassal. He even suggested to the Spanish that he be granted 60,000 acres of land near present-day Vicksburg, along with a bribe, which he called a pension, of $7,000. He got the bribe, but not the land. As you can see, Wilkinson is a duplicitous dirtbag. He was an expert at playing both sides of a table. He will scheme and plot with the Spanish, all the while seeing how things turn out with the Americans. However, by the end of 1788, Wilkinson would put the Spanish on the sidelines, for now. He had lost confidence in the Spanish and decided his lot was best cast with the United States. When the new National Army was formed in 1792, Wilkinson joined up and would receive the rank of Brigadier General. He would spend the next decade as one of the top military commanders in the West, despite rumors and accusations about his involvement with the Spanish. In fact, General Anthony Wayne wanted Wilkinson tried for treason at one point, but after Wayne's death, nothing came of the charges. During this time, tensions with the Spanish and then the French after they acquired Louisiana continued to rise. And that takes us to the Louisiana Purchase of 1803. The purchase of the Louisiana Territory opened up the West for a new round of speculators, including Wilkinson. But there was another man who had other ideas, and he was the Vice President of the United States, Aaron Burr. Burr is most famously remembered for killing Alexander Hamilton in a duel, but he was a formidable political figure in the early days of the Republic, rising to the Vice Presidency in 1801. Burr, who hailed from New York, had delivered the state to his running mate in the 1800 election, but Jefferson didn't need him this time around, and he decided to go with James Madison as his vice president. In 1804, Burr got into an escalating war of words with Hamilton, the nation's first secretary of treasury and the former commander of the army. As mentioned, Burr challenged Hamilton to a duel, and the two met on July 11, 1804. Hamilton would be killed. While Burr would have his satisfaction, his political career was over. But Burr was not done as a national figure. Like so many disgruntled Easterners, he went west. He saw an opportunity in the new Louisiana Territory. 
The exact details of what Burr wanted to do isn't exactly known, but in general, he appears to have concocted one of the following plans. Plan 1. To assemble an army and invade Texas, and even Mexico, and set himself up as the ruler of an independent state. Plan 2. Assemble an army and provoke a war with Spain with the United States, which would allow him to seize significant commercial enterprises in the territory, specifically in Texas. For this, he needed allies, and what better ally than the head of the United States Army in the area, General James Wilkinson. The two were pretty much made for each other. Wilkinson was ever the opportunist, looking to take advantage of a situation to make himself a buck. And Burr was a desperate man, but one still with significant influence. The Burr-Wilkinson conspiracy is fascinating, but I'm not going to get too much into it here. Just know that it is out there, and we will come back to it. And this allows us to finally get back to Zebulon Pike. The year is 1805, Pike is 26 years old, and he has spent more than a decade manning the forts and plying the waters of the Ohio Valley. Wilkinson had known the Pike family for many years, the elder Pike serving under Wilkinson in the 1790s. Always a man looking for an angle, Wilkinson took an interest in Pike Jr., seeing an earnest and intelligent young man who may be of use to him in the future. Pike seems to have generally appreciated the general's interest and advice. He referred to him as a father figure and mentor ebay motors is here for the ride remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease fresh installs and a whole lot of love you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own with over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly brake kits led lights exhaust kits turbochargers bumpers whatever your baby needs ebay motors has it and with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So with Jefferson sending out Lewis and Clark in 1804 and other expeditions in the queue, Wilkins decided to get into the game. In June of 1805, Wilkinson arrived at Fort Massac, where Pike was stationed. The general had exciting new orders for the young lieutenant. I know, now you're thinking that Pike can head west. But no, Wilkinson's orders were for Pike to lead a contingent of men up the Mississippi River. The Mississippi? Yes, the Mississippi River. Pike is most famous for his exploration of the West, but before we go there, we are going to follow the man on his first mission, which, while not as well known, is still very important. Pike's mission was to head up the Mississippi River. Along the way, he was to negotiate treaties with the Indians, try and broker peace between warring tribes, identify good locations for forts and outposts, and to deter illegal trading. He was also to map the river, note the minerals, the animals, the Indians, anything of military, scientific, or geological value. Finally, if possible, he was to locate the headwaters of the Mississippi. All of this he was to do before winter. For Wilkinson, he could use this information in a number of ways, notably to influence the myriad of enterprises that were sprouting up in the region, especially in the fur trade industry. 
Pike would set out on his journey on August 9, 1805. And right away, we see a huge mistake. This is too late to be heading up the Mississippi River. Anyone who's been in the upper Midwest knows this. You've got maybe three months before snow and freezing sets in. Pike should have left in May or even June. But he was a good soldier, and he set out as ordered. The expedition consisted of Pike and 20 men, a sergeant, two corporals, and 17 privates. Pike would later dub them the damn set of rascals. They had a 70-foot-long keelboat, along with provisions for four months. The keelboat was a flat-bottomed cargo vessel common to the rivers of the West. They were often powered by poles and oars, although they usually had a sail as well. For Pike and his men, going up the river was slow. They were going against the current, and they did not have anyone with knowledge of the river. On more than one occasion, their boat would get snarled by brush and logs in the river, or get stuck on a sandbar. Pike frequently walked along the shore with his rifle, hunting when possible, as he was one of the expedition's better shots. In late summer, the traffic down the river was steady, as Indians and traders brought furs to St. Louis and beyond. Pike, who later published an account of his trip up the Mississippi, reported seeing merchants in boats, Indians in canoes, and signs of camps along the river. By the way, Pike's journals recounting his expedition, which he published in 1810, are a wonderful source material. Pike was meticulous and detailed. He was, however, not a good writer, and it shows. It is loaded with lines like, Caught two perch today. It's not the most riveting tale, but thankfully other writers have used his work to make a more compelling narrative. Pike and his men made slow and steady progress north. On August 21st, they encountered their first decent-sized group of natives, a band of displaced Sauk Indians. Pike had dealt with Indians throughout his military career, but here he was more on their turf than his own. In typical fashion, he offered the natives greetings from their new father, Thomas Jefferson, and offered gifts like tobacco and salt and whiskey. On the whole, the native peoples he encountered along his journey were helpful and open to Pike, although it's not likely they understood much of what he said. The idea of the United States owning the land was not something many Indians understood. On September 1st, Pike dined with Julianne Dubuque at the settlement of the same name. Dubuque operated a lead mine in the area. This was a typical task of Pike. It was his job to assess the people, resources, and operations in the region. Dubuque was a Frenchman who had built his operation during the years of Spanish control. It would be Pike's job to assess the loyalty and intentions of men like Dubuque. On September 4th, the expedition reached the town of Prairie du Chien, a community of about 400 people located where the Wisconsin River joins the Mississippi. It was the northernmost settlement of whites on the river. The location was strategic because of the Wisconsin River. The Wisconsin itself was important as it ran all the way into the north of what is now the state, but if you go up the river about 120 miles from Prairie du Chien, the Fox River is only a short two-mile portage away, and the Fox River led to Lake Michigan. It is the shortest convenient portage between the Great Lakes and the Mississippi River basins. Thus, goods from the Great Lakes could come to Green Bay, then travel down the Fox and be portaged over to the Wisconsin and onto the Mississippi. In fact, that is exactly how the earliest explorers of the region, Louis Joliet and Jacques Marquette, had reached the Mississippi River. In Prairie du Chien, Pike got a taste of what the Upper Mississippi was like. Here he found people of all nationalities, French, British, American, Sioux, Sauk, Fox, Winnebago. It was the hub of the region. The people had survived and thrived by adapting to the environment as well as to each new overlord. First the French had come, then the British, and now the Americans were making their play. People were wary of change, but they adapted in the past, and they would adapt in the future. 
But there was one big difference here. The Americans were coming to bring civilization. They would bring order, in the way that Americans believed in order, with property and licenses and laws. The French and then the British had adapted to the natives in the environment, and vice versa, and made a workable, symbiotic relationship. Pike's arrival was a sign that things were going to change, even if many did not realize it. In Pike's writings, he recognized that a series of forts and outposts up the river would be beneficial to advancing the United States' cause on the Mississippi. At this time, things were just too wide open. There were too many different groups and agendas, and few laws and little structure. This lack of administration was hampering the advancement of American interests. With that in mind, Pike came to the conclusion that Prairie du Chien would be an ideal spot for a permanent American presence, and he spent several days in the town, identifying the potential locations to construct such a fort. Pike's men would spend several days recuperating in the town. He reported that his men bested the locals in a jumping and hopping contest, which, that he actually noted this in his journal, I find kind of adorable. Anyhow, at this time, Pike also enlisted the aid of a trapper, James Fraser, to help guide him up the river. Although born in Vermont, Fraser had moved to Canada many years before. He would help Pike swap his keelboat for a pair of barges, which were not so big or unwieldy, and thus make it easier to navigate up the river. He also arranged for a guide and an interpreter to join Pike going north. The expedition would leave Prairie du Chien on September 9th. Their next stop would be a Sioux village. The local chief, a man named Wabasha, had met Pike in Prairie du Chien and had invited him to his village. Pike brought gifts to the Sioux, knives, tobacco, rum, salt, along with the customary messages from Jefferson. He also spoke of making peace between the Sioux and the Chippewas, a fierce and bloody rivalry that had been going on since before the arrival of the Europeans. The federal government wanted peace, because that is what brought settlers and merchants and commerce. Pike would smoke a peace pipe with the Sioux, and Wabasha would give him a pipe with his own symbol on it, so that Pike could share it with the other tribes so that they might follow his example. On September 21st, the expedition landed at a Sioux village on what is now called Pike's Island, essentially in the middle of what is the modern-day Twin Cities. Here, the Minnesota River flows into the Mississippi, making it a key location, and Pike recognized that it would be an excellent spot for a fort. There they met with the Mduwakanton tribe, and I probably just butchered that, so forgive me, a band of the Santee Sioux. The Mduwakantons were one of four Santee Sioux bands. One thing about Pike is that he probably never really understood the nuances of Native American culture. Every tribe had different ways and societal structure. To Pike, that he was negotiating with one of four Sioux bands probably meant he was negotiating with them all, which was completely wrong. For his negotiations with the Sioux, Pike brought Fraser and several local traders he had run into. As before, Pike brought greetings to the natives, telling them of their new father and of the fact that they now lived in the United States. He promised better times. The Americans would bring more traders, which meant more trading partners. They would bring goods and a better life. He also spoke of peace between the Sioux and the Chippewas, and he asked about purchasing land to build a fort. In the end, Pike would get the land for his fort, 100,000 acres, but the terms were vague enough that it never really amounted much to the Sioux. He thought he got the Sioux to cease their warring with the Chippewas, but as with so many of his agreements he forged, that element would be forgotten the moment he was out of sight. Pike reported that he gave out over $200 worth of gifts to the natives, a large expenditure for the time. With his work done, Pike continued upriver. The expedition got new boats, which were smaller and lighter. They would be needed, because Pike and his men next had to tackle St. Anthony Falls, the only major waterfall on the upper Mississippi River. 
Pike also lost his guide as Fraser and the others left him. There was no reason to go further north for these men, and from this point on, Pike would be on his own. St. Anthony Falls and the rapids were strong and dangerous. Pike and his men would take days to haul their boats upriver. From Pike's journals, you can see the signs that his men were beginning to suffer from exhaustion. Also, temperatures were dropping. The cold was coming. The other issue that will dog the party is food. Pike and his men had been fed as they had come up north, but here there were no more friendly villages or outposts. They had to rely on Pike and his hunters to gather game, and some days were better than others. Progress north was slow. In his journals, Pike notes the distance he made each day, and on October 15th they managed just five miles. The rapids were constant and exhausting. The men were weakening. On October 16th, Pike and his men woke to find two inches of snow on top of them. The expedition reached a place called Little Falls, about 115 miles upriver from what is now the Twin Cities. On the same day that the snow had fallen, the expedition sergeant, Henry Kennerman, burst a blood vessel from overexerting himself. Pike reported that the man vomited up two quarts of blood. With the snows here and his men exhausted, Pike decided this was a place to make winter quarters. The boats he had were too big for the river, and they couldn't keep going north with them. It should be noted that, by setting up winter quarters, Pike was going past his mandate. His orders were to find the headwaters of the Mississippi, if possible, but to be back in St. Louis before winter. If he had been smart, he would have headed home, but as we will continue to see with Pike, he isn't always smart. He is dogged and brave and determined, but he's not always smart. The men would build a small stockade at Little Falls. Also, Pike and his men would begin to make canoes, but with no one to assist them, they did a poor job. The first batch was too small, and they sank in the rough weather. Hunting also became an issue, as the weather got worse and the game around the stockade was killed or fled. On October 31st, Pike wrote that he found himself, quote, powerfully attacked by the fantastics of the brain, end quote. A rather awesome way to say that the lack of food and sleep and progress, combined with a profound isolation, was probably giving him a massive anxiety attack. Pike, the man who never drank, wrote in his journal that he came to understand why men drank when isolated as such. All in all, Pike and his men would spend seven weeks in Little Falls. While he and his best hunters brought in game, he developed a new strategy. The waters were thickening and would eventually freeze over. He decided the best way to move forward was by sled. Thus, on December 10th, Pike set off to the north by sled instead of canoe. He left half his men under Sergeant Ketterman at the stockade they had constructed, the rest pushed north with Pike. In many ways, travel grew easier as it grew colder, as the ice and the packed snow allowed the sleds to move easily across the surface. Of course, that doesn't mean Pike and his men were very elegant about anything. They had numerous accidents, including breaking through the ice several times and even a tent catching on fire. But despite all the issues, Pike and his men kept moving forward. On January 2, 1806, the Americans ran into a group of men from a British fur trading company. The Englishman leading the group was James Grant of the Northwest Company. He invited Pike and another of his men to his lodge, which was six miles away. After eating and warming themselves, Grant told Pike that he and his men could come to a trading post on Lake Disable, just off the river. The Americans arrived at the stockade on Lake Disable on January 8th, and it was a good thing as the temperatures were getting well below freezing at night. Pike reported that the snow was three feet deep, and his January 6th journal entry says, quote, spent miserable night, end quote. And that kind of sums up outdoors in upper Minnesota in January. 
Pike found Grant's trading post to be well-stocked and those living there in good health. He and his men recuperated before leaving on January 20th, aiming for Leech Lake, where there was a larger Northwest Company trading post. Pike and his men would reach the post on Leech Lake on February 1st. In addition to reaching the post, Pike had come to the conclusion that Leech Lake was the main source of the Mississippi River. He wrote in his journal, quote, I will not attempt to describe my feelings of the accomplishment of my voyage, for this is the main source of the Mississippi, end quote. Pike had done it, or so he thought. Unfortunately, Leech Lake is not the source of the Mississippi. That honor goes to Lake Atasca, about 25 miles away. But let's not be too hard on Pike. It would take until 1832 for someone, a man named Henry Schoolcraft, to correctly figure out what the river's source was. And even then, that would be disputed for decades. So Pike had found his headwaters, and he had come to the Northwest Company's trading post on the lake. It was an impressive fort, 13-foot-high walls, 150 feet on each side with three gates. Pike would find out that the post had 109 men on the payroll. The leader of the establishment was Hugh McGillis, a trading partner in the Northwest Company and the director of the Fond du Lac Department. The post was just one part of the Northwest Company's fur trading empire, which ran from the St. Lawrence River to Hudson Bay to the Rocky Mountains to the Great Lakes and the Mississippi River. Based in Montreal, it was larger than any other fur trading entity, except for the famed Hudson's Bay Company. It should be noted that the Northwest Company's presence on American soil was completely legal. A good host, McGillis fed Pike and his men and gave them clothes more appropriate for the harsh weather. The entire expedition spent several days recuperating. The fort was well stocked with supplies, and Pike even borrowed books from McGillis, reading some Shakespeare during his stay. Pike would eventually travel around the area in a sleigh with McGillis, learning as much as he could about the company's business and tactics and plans. He also interviewed trappers and traders and Indians that he came upon. In this time, Pike took many notes and made many observations, and some of those observations disturbed him. On February 7th, Pike would deliver a letter to McGillis accusing him and the Northwest Company of operating without a license, not paying taxes, giving liquor to the Indians, and generally promoting British interests over those of Americans. More than anything, Pike recognized the advantage the British had over the native peoples. As Pike had seen in Prairie du Chien, they were interdependent on each other. The natives brought furs, the British brought goods they desired. But for the most part, the British had let the Indians go about their lives as before. If war came between the U.S. and Britain, the Indians would have no reason to help the Americans. You might think this is kind of an odd thing to do, accuse the man of tax evasion and so forth. I mean, McGillis and his comrades had basically saved the American party from freezing to death. Here they were eating their food and drinking their whiskey and reading their books, and Pike drops the hammer down. Oh, and one other thing we can't forget about. Pike ordered the British flag being flown over the outpost shot down. He then replaced it with an American flag. Kind of an odd thing to do to your host, but this is Pike. In the most remote place and in the most difficult circumstance, he draws on his fervent nationalism. Fortunately, McGillis seems to have taken Pike's words and actions in stride. McGillis and the others like him had survived by adapting to their environment. He was not interested in creating an international incident. He needed to persevere, whether with the British or the Americans. So he basically smiled and nodded and agreed with Pike. McGillis would later write a letter to Pike, basically oozing with flattery, saying that the company appreciated Pike pointing out the problems he said the company wouldn't involve itself with diplomacy with the Indians anymore, and they wouldn't sell them liquor, and of course they wouldn't fly the British flag anymore. 
you get the idea of what was going on here. For McGillis, he could afford to be magnanimous. Pike would be gone in short order, and things would simply go back to the way they had been. So for roughly two weeks, Pike and his men were guests at the Lake Leach Post. McGillis kept up the charade as needed, and Pike was satisfied with the man's responses. McGillis would send Pike home, well supplied in with guides. No doubt he was happy to have the Americans out of his hair. Pike would reach the stockade at Little Falls in early March. To his dismay, he found that Sergeant Kennerman had broken open the booze, drinking it as well as selling it to the men. He had even taken some of Pike's private items and sold them or traded them to passing Indians. Pike would conduct a court-martial and have Kennerman broken to the rank of private. The small troop would spend the next few weeks restocking supplies. They hunted and traded with the many visitors that ventured past their stockade. Finally, they would head back to St. Louis in early April. The voyage down the river was far, far smoother than the one going up, and they would make good speed down the Mississippi, which was high due to the spring rains and the melting snows. On April 30th, 1806, Pike and his expedition arrived in St. Louis. I have to say that I want to give a cheer when Pike gets home. His journey up the Mississippi had not been easy, but in his defense, he had no experience venturing into the unknown. He had no experts with him, no botanist or doctor or even a friendly guide. He had no state-of-the-art scientific equipment, and to top it off, he had been sent upriver way too late in the year. For Pike and his men, there was a lot of learning on the job, and they had done the best that they could. Of course, it was far from a perfect endeavor. Pike had blundered his way through things at times, and probably would have died had it not been for the help of others that he'd met along the way. In his dealings with the Indians, as well as the British, he had mixed righteousness and idealism with the tact of a bull in a china shop. Pike had been sent on this journey to do several things. Map the Mississippi, up to its headwaters if possible. Observe and assess the various powers on the river, Indians and non-Indians. Scout out locations for forts and outposts, and even buy land when deemed necessary. He was also to work out peace between Warring Sioux and Chippewas. And he was cracked down on the unlicensed trading in the region. If you look at the list, Pike had done a lot of that, at least sort of. Pike might have believed he had done it all, but reality was much different. The Sioux and the Chippewas would go right back to fighting, and the British traders would go right back to doing what they had always done, and Lake Leach was not really the headwaters of the Mississippi. And we can't forget that Pike had ignored orders by not returning the previous fall, but it was a foul that Wilkinson and the government would forgive him for, because there were many positives in Pike's karma bank. He had acquired land for a fort. The American government would build Fort Snelling in 1819, in the modern-day Twin Cities, on the spot that Pike had selected. By the way, if you are ever in the Twin Cities, I highly recommend visiting Fort Snelling, as it still stands, and it is a wonderful historical site. It's high up on the bluff with a commanding view of the area, and you can see why Pike selected it. Also, the Army would build a fort in Prairie du Chien on one of the sites recommended by Pike. When Pike ventured up the Mississippi, let's be honest, exploring the unknown is not a lot of what he was doing. These areas had been visited many times by many people. What Pike would do with his expedition was connect many of the dots within the region and put it into a perspective that would help the growing American government. Pike's descriptions and observations were immensely valuable. If you look at his documents, you'll see what looks like a complex Excel spreadsheet. He diligently took temperatures, kept track of prices of goods up and down the river, took notes of the kinds of furs that were available, recorded the names and numbers of the Indians they had encountered, and a whole lot more. And his observations about the British and how they had immense influence on the natives was spot on. Again, he drew a bigger picture of a world that was only known in small bits and pieces. 
And finally, for all of Pike's bumblings and occasional poor decisions, he did get his men home. 21 men left St. Louis, 21 men returned. Well done, Zebulon. So Pike was back in St. Louis, and it was a city ripe with plotting and skullduggery. Pike's mentor, General Wilkinson, was knee-deep in political intrigue with the former vice president, Aaron Burr. Rumors and innuendo were flying across the frontier. War with Spain was inevitable in many people's eyes. But Zebulon Pike would have little time to relax and enjoy a reunion with his family. That is because three days after returning to St. Louis, our friend General Wilkinson had a new gig for Pike. It was an expedition west, into the central and southern Great Plains, to the Continental Divide. Next time, Pike sets out west to explore the Louisiana Territory, amid rumors of war, treason, spying, and plotting. It will be an arduous journey that will threaten the lives of his entire expedition. Thank you for listening. I will see you next time as we conclude the life of American explorer Zebulon Pike. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marveled at the golden face of Tutankhamun? Or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of ancient Egypt. 